Let me tell you a story, podcast number 113. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, it was the age of never mind it is a how long you are. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Our guest today, Leslie Montgomery, is the author and ghostwriter of over a dozen books, including The Faith of Condoleezza Rice, A Parent's Guide to Spiritual Warfare, Equipping Your Kids to Win the Battle, Redemptive Suffering, Lessons Learned from the Garden of Gethsemane, Were It Not for Grace, and Engaging the Enemy, The Christian Woman's Guide to Spiritual Warfare. She is best known for writing the spiritual biography, The Faith of Condoleezza Rice, when Condoleezza was serving our nation as Secretary of State during the George W. Bush administration. Her latest book, also a spiritual biography, is titled The Faith of Mike Pence and is scheduled for release next August. Leslie has been writing for Focus on the Family for over 20 years and is the former director of publications for the American Association of Christian Counselors. She is also the founder of Yeshua Ministries. Her goal is to know Christ and make Him known through her writing, speaking, and teaching ministry. She's traveled to churches and conferences around the world through her evangelical ministry, sharing the Word of God. She's been writing full-time since 1996 and is the mother of four and grandmother of six children, and she resides in Boise, Idaho. I'm going to start the questions. Um, But first, I want to say I would love to talk books with Leslie, but we'll save that discussion for another time. For this podcast, we'd like to focus on her personal story and her journey out of a traumatic childhood into the teacher, writer, speaker, wife, mother, and grandmother she's become. So, welcome, Leslie. Well, hello, Becky and Steve. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for this Let Me Tell You a Story podcast I haven't heard you speak, so I don't know where you usually begin your life story, but I'm thinking your parents' unique marriage might be a good place to begin. How was their wedding different than the typical happy celebration? I think that is a God-led question, i got to tell you. I always try to start telling my testimony by talking about my parents' relationship because it was really unique. Um, My parents... On their very first date, uh, my father took my mother, instead of going out on their date, he took her to his apartment and he raped her at gunpoint. And instead of taking her home, he uh, fell asleep and she went and sat on the couch and wept and stayed there several hours. And when she didn't return to her home, She was staying with her aunt. Her aunt called the police. The police showed up at my dad's home and pounded on the door. He, my dad jumped up and answered the door and um, they took my dad into custody, took my mother to what they called a reformed girl's home. And during that time, 
like I said, my mother was living with her aunt. My uh, grandmother, my mother's mother, was um, not a big part of her life, but my mom's aunt called her and told her that my mother was in a girls' reformed home. My grandmother came and found out what happened, and she went to my dad, and she gave him an ultimatum. She said, you either marry my daughter or I press statutory rape charges against you. Now, my father had, had served time for stealing tires off of a car with some of his buddies, and he didn't want to go back to jail. And so he went to his dad and asked him what he should do, and of course, his dad gave him the suggestion that he should marry my mother. So a couple days later, my mom wed her rapist, and that's how my parents' relationship began. Wow, that is just um, hard to comprehend. And I was going to say mixed feelings, but really it's not. It just sounds so negative and so sad for your mom, just the, the whole thing from start to finish. So I'm sure that affected your childhood. So would you like to talk about that? Well, I think it's safe to say that dad had some issues, right? <laughs> I mean, um, my, my parents had my, my elder brother pretty quickly. And then 18 months later, I was born. And then a couple years later, my younger brother was born. Um, my dad definitely had issues against women. There was domestic violence in my home. Uh, there was sexual abuse in my home. There, my, do- my father was an alcoholic, a womanizer. And to, to make things even more traumatic in my home, um, his father, my paternal grandfather, was off also sexually abusive towards me. Um, the, the, I think, you know, the sexual abuse and the physical abuse was, was really traumatic in the home. But one of the things I think the, the, the most powerful role model in a child's life is the, is the same sex. Um, role model, so the parents. So, so my mom was my most influential role model to me, and so I grew up watching my mom be the codependent, to be being submissive to this abusive man. And one of the the earliest memories I have is is my father put making my mom sit on one side of the room, and him in one of his drunken rages sitting on the other side of the room and making my brothers and I stand in the middle and him screaming at us to choose who do we love more mom or dad and my mom saying stop it stop it quit making him do that don't make him do that please stop and and him screaming at us and we're standing in the middle huddled together screaming and crying and he's screaming at us to do that and of course, I remember the screaming. I remember um, the yelling at, at night at my mom, calling her all kinds of foul names. My, my mom tells me stories about how my dad would threaten to kill her and with guns and how she had to dismantle guns when he was passed out. It was a very uncertain childhood. My dad could not keep a job because he had such a rage. He was a rageaholic and an alcoholic. And he, I mean, he bragged. I remember him bragging when I was a teenager that he had 25 jobs in 20 years. And so 
when I, when my brothers and I were all in elementary school, my mom went to work. My father was very jealous of my mom. And so whenever she got a job, he would show up at her job several times a day to make sure that she was not cheating on him, that she was where she said she was. And so she'd end up quitting that job because, you know, her, of course, her bosses didn't like that. Aside from the sexual abuse, I don't remember being physically abused by my dad until I I got much older and I became old enough to start fighting with him myself. And, you know, we all handle conflict differently. I know my older brother would go in his room and kind of put his head in the sand and just, just hide. My younger brother was handled the conflict by eating. He's always been really heavy. I mean, to this day, he, he's very heavy, very obese. And I was the one who was the fighter. I would go toe-to-toe with my dad. And I always felt a strong impulse to protect my mom. And so I was always in the middle of it. So there's always conflict with my dad. And, and part of that conflict was that I really believed the lie that if I had my dad's love, that I would be okay. Even though we'd have these big knockdown, drag out fights between us, I would go to him afterwards and I would apologize profusely and beg him. The fights were always about, why can't you love me? I don't understand why you don't love me. And he couldn't ever give me an answer. I, I didn't know at the time that he couldn't give me what he didn't have. But I just, I just didn't understand. And my father had very clear gender roles. You know, girls spend time with their moms, boys hang out with their dads. So my brothers were able to go hunting and fishing and spend time with him outside and and do guy things. But anytime I went to him and said, you know, can I hang out with you? Can I take a hunter's safety course? Or can I go fishing? Or can he would always say, go do something with your mom or, you know, go do the dishes or go do this and that. He didn't want really anything to do with me. And I just, I, I had such a hard time grasping why he couldn't love me. That was really what we what we fought about the most, besides him not taking good care of my mom. And as soon as I got old enough to to start protecting my mom, then it it, it got worse. And there was one time in my life that my dad wanted to spend time alone with me. And it was my dad had gotten a job at the Forest Service as a maintenance worker. And I had made friends with this woman that he worked with. Her name was Marta. And she had just kind of taken me under her wing and she taught me how to play racquetball and just kind of loved on me. I think she kind of related to my home life. And she was getting married. And she wanted me to be in her wedding party. And the whole family was invited to her wedding. She was getting married in a racquetball court at the, at the local club. And we were all getting ready to go to the wedding. And my father announced that that was the day that he and I were going to spend time alone together. And I was ecstatic. And had I been able to look, interpret the look on my mother's face, I would have known something serious was going on. But I didn't. And I was just ecstatic. I was 12 years old. And I got ready. And my dad took me to the, to the wedding. And they had an open bar before the wedding and my dad got sloshed. I mean, he was wasted. 
And I was embarrassed. He was making crude comments, um, touching women inappropriately. They were getting married in the middle of the racquetball court. He pulled the fire alarm. I grabbed him, was rushing him out of the room. I was saying, hey, we need to go. He was saying I was act- inappropriately cursing at me, saying you're acting just like your mother. And after the wedding, he drove to, the, to his boss's house where the reception was, continued to drink. I hid in a closet in the hallway, you know, those, those doors that are like, that open up that used to house washer and dryers. Well, I hid in, in that up on top of the washer and dryer and closed the closet. And I could see him through the slats in the door. And he was, oh, so crude and making sexist comments and racial comments and touching people. And it was just, I sat up there and cried for hours. And then towards the end of the night, Marta came and she opened the doors and took me by the hand to the back room. And she said, listen, your dad's behavior is not your fault. I don't want you to think it is. You didn't ruin my, my wedding. Um, I just want you to know I love you. And he came back and he's cursing at me. He can't find his keys or his, his tie. And of course, it's all my fault. And he says, time to go. And I find the keys, forgot about the tie, we found the keys, and I had to drive home that night. I was 12 years old, I had to drive home, um, because he was so drunk, he just kept on passing out. And, and we got home, and my mom was standing at the window. She knew what, she knew what was going to happen, standing at the window. And we got into the house, and I, we got to their bedroom, and I started helping her undress him. And she said, no, go to your room. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to help you. And she said, no, go to your room. She knew it was going to happen. But I didn't know. I, and I left the room, and I shut her door, but I could see. You know, there was a crack, and I, I could see what was going on. And I, I wanted to make sure she was going to be okay. And so I stood there and watched her. And as she undressed my dad, my dad got a second wind, and he just started grabbing her and grabbing her and grabbing her and pulling her hair and grabbing her. And she kept screaming, no, no, stop it, stop it, no. And I watched my dad rape my mother. And I, it was almost like I was out of my body watching it happen. And it was like watching a train wreck happen. It was like so horrific. You couldn't stop it from happening. And, and you couldn't stop it from watching it, but you couldn't stop it from happening. And and it was, it was just one of those pivotal moments in my life that was just traumatizing to me. And I don't remember anything that happened after that for the next probably 48 hours. But within the next few days is the first time I tried to kill myself. I felt guilty about what happened. I felt guilty that I didn't protect my mom. I felt like I was a horrible, a horrible person. And... After that, my relationship with my dad deteriorated so bad. I I ran away from home. I um, got really involved with drugs and alcohol. I stopped going to school, skipping school constantly. It, It was just really, really some many hard years, many, many hard years. I'd like to back up to the shotgun wedding, um, kind of in a different way. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, to have been raped by this guy, would she want to marry him? 
even not knowing all that she found out of you know, how he would treat her and how the life would be. You know, my mom was a really shy woman, and she hadn't, she was 17, first of all, barely 17. She hadn't been raised well. Um, her dad had left shortly after she was born. He had been married to her mom, but he had told her mom that he didn't want any kids. And when she, her mom got pregnant on purpose as a last-ditch effort to save the marriage. And he was like, told you I didn't want kids, and he left. And my grandmother was the baby of 13, had a sixth-grade education. I don't fully know her story. I mean, it was not function. It was not functional upbringing. But she had actually served time for welfare fraud. And she ha- ended up having three children with three men. My mom was the oldest. She was quite promiscuous in her day. And she left my mom with numerous people throughout her lives. It was not uncommon for my mom to be woken up in the middle of the night and her mom to say, come on, Diane, and have her bags packed and put in the car and be driven somewhere or to the airport, put on a plane or driven somewhere for her mother to get out of the car, drop her, her suitcase in the middle of the street, say, stand right here, for her mother to go to a stranger's door, which was a stranger to my mom, not to her mother, knock on the door, talk, talk to this person, get in the car and drive off and leave my mom standing there. And then this woman would come up to my mom and say, you don't know me, but I'm your daddy's sister and I'm going to be taking care of you for a while. And so my mother lived with numerous relatives and strangers and even in the foster care system for a while. So at that time, she was living with her daddy's sister, her aunt. And I don't know how long she had been living with her aunt, but it wasn't long, maybe a few months. And she, and so my mother had just learned to just be quiet and do what you're told. So she just, um, I think my dad was really the first person who ever came along and gave her any sort of attention. And what had happened in pre in the story before the time he took her out was every day after school, my mom would walk down the street from their home to the restaurant where her aunt was working as a waitress. And she'd sit at the fountain bar and have a pop and wait for her aunt to get off work. And my dad was a cook there. And my mom had a fake ring on her, on her ring finger. And he walked by her one day and he said, are you married? And she said, no. And, and he said, well, you know, do you want to go out sometime? And she said, I, 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 she'd never been asked out before. She said, I can't go out with anybody unless you ask my aunt. And so he asked her aunt and her aunt knew that he came from a good family. And, and he did. I mean, as far as the world knew, I mean, my grandfather was well-respected in town. He was a um, an, uh, mason. He was a businessman. I mean, nobody knew what went on inside the home. And so why would they not think that his son would be a good guy? They had no reason to believe otherwise. So that, and that's, you know, my mother did what she was told. So jumping ahead, <laughs> we jump back. Now we're going to jump ahead. 
Uh, tell us about your teen years. Well, I'll, I'll start by telling you about the time I ran away, because my dad was my dad was a police officer for a very short time, and he got fired because he gave an interview in town without permission and made the police department look really bad. But they did make him what was called a special deputy. And a special deputy was used like if the Hells Angels came through town or they needed extra security for something like a big event, they would call the special deputies in town. So my dad was a special deputy. And one day, I think I was 12 or 13, I asked my dad if I could start dating. And instead of having a normal conversation with me and saying, you know, well, you should wait till you're 16 or, you know, 17 or whatever a normal parent would have, we got in a big fight about it. And he started yelling and screaming at me. He was drunk. And he, he took these keys that he had. It's called a key caddy, and it held like 40 keys. Have you ever seen them? They hook, they hook on uh, like a maintenance person's belt. And he threw those keys at me, and I moved out of the way, and it went right by my face, and it hit the wall behind me in the dining room, left a big old probably five-inch hole in the wall. And I ran towards the front door, and he yelled at me, if you leave, don't ever come back. And I thought, there's my excuse to leave, you know, if nobody else is willing to get the heck out of here, I am, you know, and, and I took off running. And I was not planning ever coming back. And I heard my mom screaming in the back, Leslie, come back. And, and I just ran. I was just so happy to get out of there. And he, uh, I ran and ran and ran. And I hid in this man's backyard. And I knew who the man was. I knew he wasn't there because I had mowed his lawn the week before. I was really a little entrepreneur. I would go house to house and mow lawns and pull weeds and offer to do dishes and whatever for money. Because that was the only way I got things I needed. My parents didn't buy school clothes or things like that for me because we never had money. And I hid in this guy's yard and I saw my dad driving by. After he drove by, I took off running and I ran to my friend Melanie's house. Her father was a pastor and I knew she had a rough life too. She didn't have a mom in her life. And we went over to the church and I said, you want to run away with me? And she said, yeah. And her dad was listening to us. And so he called the police and the police showed up. And they said, oh, you, you can do this the easy way or the hard way. So they put me in handcuffs and put me in the back of the car. And they said, oh, you're Red's kid. That's what they call my dad because he had red hair. And I'm thinking, oh, great. So they call my dad and he comes down to the station. Now he's been drinking Jack Daniels all day. And he, and he comes to the station and he smells like Jack Daniels and toothpaste. I can smell him. He's sitting on one side of the table. I'm sitting on the other. And the police officers are in there with me and they're asking questions and I'm not saying anything because I know anything I say is going to get me into trouble. And my father is saying things like, well, she got in a fight with her mom earlier. Things are going to be okay. And because I'm not saying anything, the policeman says, you know, we're going to leave and you can talk alone with your dad. And I'm thinking, that's the last thing I want. <laughs> but they leave the room. And I didn't know it, but they had one of those windows where they could see through and hear the conversation. And they leave the room. They're not gone very long, and my dad reaches over the table and grabs me and picks me up and pulls me over the table in my face. I'm in his face, and he says, if you ever humiliate me like this again, I'll have your behind in foster care so fast your head will spin. And the only reason I'm here is because your mom is at home crying her eyes out. And I'm crying, and I said, I just want you to love me. 
And he said, you can forget it after a stunt like this. And he just pushes me back in the chair and I'm just sobbing. And a few minutes later, the police come back in. And I share the story with you because many years later, I run into this police officer and I asked him, my dad had been telling everybody, my dad got fired after that. And my dad had been telling my family that I got him fired because I ran away from home. And I asked that policeman, I said, did I, did I get my dad fired for running away? And he said, no, your dad was wearing his special deputy uniform in the bar one night, fell off the bar stool, was coming on to women. We got complaints, so we had to cut him loose. And I said, you know, my dad's always blamed me for that. And I said, I appreciate you telling me that. I really do. So my life, my teenage years were just really crazy. Right after I turned, well, I'll just say this, from 12 to 15, I was really unhealthy. I was doing drugs, alcohol. I was sneaking out my bedroom window at night to meet with boys. I was just really unhealthy. Skip school all the time. My parents never asked for my report card, so I... Nobody really knew I was skipping school. I turned 16 in February, got my first job two days before that at a Dairy Queen. In May, three months later, I, while I was working at Dairy Queen, this airman from the nearby airbase came in, told me I had pretty blue eyes, and I thought, this is my ticket out of my house. He asked me if I would go on a date. I said yes, talked my dad into meeting him which was a hard thing to do. The day my dad met him, my dad was cleaning a shotgun to intimidate him, <laughs> which was funny because I knew my dad didn't care about me. And I think it was just a couple months later, this gentleman and I went to my mom and said, will you sign for me to get married? And if you don't, I'm going to run away again. My mom said, oh my gosh, no. We went directly to my dad. And my dad's first question was, do you have to get married? <laughs> and we said, no. Never had sex, and um, he said, okay. So three days later, I was married in my parents' backyard. I knew I didn't love this man, but he was my ticket out. And because I knew I didn't love him, he didn't fill that void inside of me either. And so in all my 16 years of wisdom, I thought, you know what? I'm going to have a baby because if I had somebody who loved me, and I loved them, then that void inside of me will be filled, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense to a 16-year-old? And so I had this beautiful baby a year and a month later, and as much as I loved her, she didn't fill that void. And I got pregnant right away again. And 11 months after she was born, I had a little boy, and he didn't fill that void either. And then my husband was transferred out of state in the Air Force, and when he came home at night, I decided that my problem was the reason I had this void inside of me was because I was married to the wrong guy. So I must need to go out and find Mr. Wright. So he'd come home after work and I would leave my kids with him. I had a fake ID and I would go to the bar and I would try to find Mr. Wright. I was very promiscuous, continued to do use drugs and alcohol. I would be gone till wee hours of the morning. I would come home. And another thing I was dealing with at that time, I was dealing with severe depression. I was dealing with flashbacks from the sexual abuse that I had endured as a kid. Um, I was really 
just haunted by what I had endured as a child. And I didn't know how to deal with it. I ended up getting pregnant again, and I knew it wasn't my husband's baby, and I was scared. And so I ended up having an abortion. And having that abortion, I knew it was a baby. And, and I honestly believe that every woman who has an abortion knows it's a baby. But that her decision to abort the baby is more important than her decision to face the consequences or the responsibility to care for that child. I really believe that. And that's why the statistics tell us that women who have abortions, that post-abortion depression is like at 90%, that the PTSD is increased by 40%, that the suicide rate increases, and all these statistics are just huge for women post-abortion. And those are definitely true for me as well. And it's really where my life spiraled. I, I really try, started committing suicide, trying to kill myself several times. And my life just spiraled so bad that I ended up just really feeling like I need to leave my kids with this man and get away. And so I did. I, I left my kids and moved back to the town that my parents lived in and just spiraled on my own out of control. I tried to kill myself one last time. I was um, 20 years old. It was right before Christmas. I went shopping and bought my kids all these Christmas presents. I wrote two suicide notes, one to my mom and one to my kids, telling them that it wasn't their fault. I took 48 extra strength sleeping pills. And I remember taking them, was sitting there taking them one by one. And I just couldn't wait to finally feel freedom from just everything, just to feel freedom. When I hear people say people who try to commit suicide really don't want to die, I really wanted to die. I did. And as I faded out, I heard a voice say to me, is this what you really want? And I said back, I don't really want to die. I just don't know how to live. And the next thing I know, I was vomiting all over the place. I was on the floor, laying in my vomit, and I hear my mom screaming. And she kicks open my door, and I hear her yelling at me, I can't believe you're doing this to me. I can't believe you're doing this to me. I can't believe you're doing this to me. And somebody, I guess, walking by heard her and came and helped her help me to the car, and she drove me to the hospital, and they revived me. When I woke up, I was handcuffed to the bed, the hospital bed. And the nurse said, you gave us quite a scare there. And I'm like, why am I handcuffed? And a police officer came in, and I had been writing bad checks all over town. And he said, you have a choice. You can go to jail for writing bad checks, or you can go to a hospital. Well, I wasn't stupid. I didn't want to go to jail. So I went to the hospital. And while I was there, I got a letter from my husband who was with the kids out of state. And he said he, he, had, he was divorcing me and that I should forget being a mom, that he found somebody he was going to remarry. And so he had found a new mom for the kids. So I wasn't their mom anymore. 30 days later, I was divorced and therefore my insurance ran out. 
And so they kicked me out of the hospital. It took a long time for me to get on my feet. I got in trouble again, and I ended up serving four months in the Idaho State of Corrections. During that time, I met with a counselor. And one of the things she said to me when I, when I met with her was, Leslie, you're really smart. You could do something with your life if you really wanted to. And I, and I just remember thinking, going back to my cell and thinking, what if she's right? And I just spent hours thinking about that. And during all this downfall in my life, my mom had caught my dad in numerous affairs, his last one, and he wanted to divorce her to marry the last girl he had had an affair with. And she was working as a waitress at a truck stop. And there was this retired colonel named Art Montgomery who had been traveling through. He was retired army and he worked for Northrop in Los Angeles. One of the things he did was he worked with young adults helping to prepare them to go to West Point. And so he drove all over the West Coast area and he interviewed those who wanted to go to West Point and he helped prepare them to qualify to go to West Point. And he met my mom and he talked with her and they started talking on the phone. She told him about her troubled daughter and how I was in the Department of Corrections. And he said, you know, I'd love to, to talk to your daughter or, or start writing her a letter. And my mom, I talked to my mom every day, I called her from jail. And she said, would you, would you like this guy to start writing to you? And I thought, well, you know, I don't have anything else to do but time. You know, that's why they call it doing time. And so he started writing to me and I started writing back to him. And we started talking on the phone. And he was just really nice Texas gentleman and really super kind and listened well and was this incredible mentor and great listener and I felt comfortable just telling him my life story and he was very empathetic and compassionate and loving and just great for me. When I left jail I went to a halfway house and we talked a lot on the phone and I went to counseling there and the counselor kind of said the same thing you can do something with your life and I was like well this guy was saying that to me and this woman was saying to me, now there's three people telling me that. And, and I started to maybe believe that maybe that was possible. And I had quit school in 10th grade. And so I got, I got out of the halfway house and I moved back with my mom in this little itty bitty town that I'd gotten into trouble. And I thought, I'm not going to do well with my life here. And I was talking to this guy, Art, one day on the phone. I said, I just don't know how I'm going to do well. I don't know what to do, if I'm going to be able to get a job here or what. You know, I, I don't even have a high school diploma. And the only thing I'm really going to qualify is for working in the bar. And he said, you know, Leslie, I, I was thinking about this. And I was thinking maybe you should move here to L.A. I have a, I have a two-bedroom place here. And it's got you have your own bathroom. And... And you could go to school, and you could get a job, and you don't have to worry about any expenses, and kind of get on your feet, go to counseling, do what you need to do. And I thought, you know, I, this guy sounds all nice and everything, but I haven't had real luck with guys. You know, they've taken advantage of me my whole life. What if this guy's a creep? I talked to my mom about it, and she goes, this guy is safe. My mom and I packed up all my stuff, and we drove to L.A., and I met him at a, at a restaurant because I thought, I want to check this guy out first, right? And as soon as I met him, I knew he was the man that I had talked to on the phone. Just salt of the earth, gentlemen. We were sitting there at the restaurant, and my mom and, had, and I had talked about this before we got there. And she said, Art, you know, what, what is it you want Leslie to call you while she's living here? 
Mr. Montgomery, Art. And he said, well, you know, I was kind of hoping she'd call me dad. And I thought, dad? I've never had a dad like this before. I thought, that's weird. You know, We went back to his house. My mom stayed for a few days to make sure I was comfortable with him. He took me out, bought me everything I needed for my bedroom, bathroom, towels, everything. And he paid for my schooling, just like I was really his daughter. He paid for my counseling. I spent many, many hours with my head in his lap crying, saying, you know what, I'm not going to make it. And every time he said, oh, yes, you are. You know what? You can do anything, Leslie. You can do anything. I have faith in you. And he told me that so much that, you know what? I began to believe it. And I'm telling you, that man in his unconditional love and support of me changed my life. It changed my life. I could not have described, handpicked, or built a better dad. I mean, I couldn't have. This man was just made by God to be the perfect man. He wasn't a believer. I have never met a Christian dad that is as great as this man. He did get saved before he died. He died a year and a half ago, but he was amazing to me and a father and an encourager in my life, my number one cheerleader to the day he died. I lived with him for two years and called him dad, went to school, got on my feet, moved to Nashville, Tennessee, was reintroduced to my kids, was counseling for the YWCA, worked with abused girls, worked with juvenile sex offenders and adult sex offenders. My kids were then eight and nine. They came to live with me, which was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. I became a believer right before I turned 26 years old, which was unbelievable. God matured me in Christ very quickly. I jumped in the word of God. I mean, when I got saved, it was, I was ready to get saved. I was so hungry for Christ. I had been really involved in the new age and was just really hungry to know the truth. And I will be a believer 27 years, November 2nd of this year. And it has been, you know, there's there's some incredible verses that God promised me right when I got saved. And one of them is Joel 2.25, that he will restore the years eaten away by the locusts. And my life is indeed proof of that. I mean... Look at me. I mean, who would have thought I should be dead or in prison? So everything came back together in your life, and it was happy ever after. Is that how it worked for you? We like to believe it that way, don't we? (laughs) You know, amongst believers, we try to give the impression that we have it all together and that uh, we don't go through anything difficult or that we don't struggle with sin. But the truth is, is that even after we become Christians, we struggle with sin. Some of the things I struggled with before I became a Christian, I continued to struggle with after I was a Christian. And one of those things was sexuality. You know, I was very promiscuous before I was a believer, and because my whole life I had grown up believing that sex equals love. So all of a sudden, I become a Christian, and I learn that that's wrong, 
and I suddenly have conviction for having sex. And it's the first time I ever feel conviction for having sex. But it took me a long time to get out of that. And it wasn't as easy as just don't do it, you know, which people want you to believe it is. It took me learning about who I am in Christ. It took healing from the sexual abuse that I went through. I had gone through a lot of counseling, secular counseling, but now the Lord wanted me to go through some Christian counseling and take that pain to the foot of the cross and get healing and learn about how he valued me and how he saw me. So I had to go through not just a time of, you know, stop sinning in this area, but a time of healing in my life in that area. And I had other areas that needed healing too. Like I I always had great mistrust for men. You know, all men to me were users. All men you couldn't trust. All men, you know, were, were bad. And I was always very attracted to men who are abusive. I mean, why wouldn't I be? I grew up with abuse. You, you're attracted to that which you, you grew up with. And anybody you have unfinished business with. And I had unfinished business with my dad. And so I was attracted to men who were like my dad. And, and even though I was not responsible for the abuse or the men who abused me, I had to learn that I was a part of the dance. So I had to learn why am I attracted to abusive men? Why am I attracted to you know, why do I stay in a relationship with an abusive man? So there was a lot for me to learn after I became a believer. And it took a lot of time. One of the good things for me was that the person who led me to the Lord told me when I got saved, you know, don't ever believe what anybody tells you about the Bible, even your pastor. He wasn't telling me like, don't believe people. He was saying, dig in the word, find out for yourself if something's true. And so I did. And I bought a, a Greek and Hebrew Bible. You know, it was in English, but it gave you the Greek and Hebrew number so you can look it up in the back and find out what the real word is and what the story is behind the story. And so I started studying Greek and Hebrew and finding out what the real word was and what the meaning was. And so I really dug deep and started doing studies and and just I, I w- from the time I got saved, I was spending up till this day, two, three, four hours a day in the word, studying God's word, praying, and it really fortified me in Christ. And during those, those hard years, when I was walking in some of the toughest areas of my life, and, and I like to say that there is promise in the pain. And what I mean by that is, even as a believer, I have been through a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And obviously, prior to being a believer, I have been. But if you run to God instead of away from God, if you press into God through prayer, through reading His Word, and you seriously just cry out to Him, I mean, cry out to Him in your pain what something beautiful happens and you 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 grow closer to him you it, some you know you 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 have a relation you develop a relationship with him that you would have never ever ever would have pursued otherwise apart from that pain that you never would have gotten without that pain i have post traumatic stress disorder from a traumatic event that happened to me 15 years ago when I went through it, I would not have told you for probably the first 13 years that there was anything good that I could tell you that came out of it. 
But God's word is true in Romans 8, 28, that, that he promises that good can come from it, right? I mean, you be- I believe that verse to be true. And so I was thinking the other day, what good has come out of this trauma? I mean, I have had horrible things with post-traumatic stress disorder. It's got to be the most horrible thing that can happen to somebody. It is just horrific disorder. But you know what? I can honestly say to you that I have been stripped of false pride. I have been stripped of the Leslie I used to be. And I am a different person today because of that than I was 15, 20 years ago. I like who I am today. I like who I am in Christ. I'm confident in who I am in Christ. And I wasn't confident like this 15, 20 years ago. I'm not ashamed to say I love Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed to say he is my Lord and my Savior and my everything. And I don't know that I would be that way apart from the suffering that I've endured. I think that we're never fully going to understand suffering until we're on the other side of eternity. But I think that the closer we pursue a relationship with Christ, the more understanding we get. That's been my experience anyway. Well, Leslie, this has been so good. I could listen all night to the story of your life and how God has changed it. Is there anything else you would like to say in conclusion? You know, I'd just like to say that we are all born with a void inside of us. And we all try different things to fill that void. And some of the things that I used to fill that void were my father's love, my children, men, sex, money, drugs, alcohol, even my career, even food. At one point, I I got up to 285 pounds. So there's been lots of things that I've tried to fill that void inside of me, and none of them worked. On November 2nd, 1993, I asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart. And in that very moment, that void inside my heart was filled. And I can honestly tell you that to this very day, that void has been filled. I have never once had that emptiness ever again. That is not special just to me. That is available to absolutely anybody who wishes to feel the guilt and shame of their sin, of their life, of that emptiness removed from them. The Bible says that if you call on the name of Jesus, if you ask him to be your Lord and Savior, he will come into your heart and he will be your Lord and Savior. If you'd like to know more information about me, or about asking Jesus into your heart, you can reach me on my website at www.authorlesliemontgomery.com. That's A-U-T-H-O-R-L-E-S-L-I-E-M-O-N-T-G-O-M-E-R-Y.com. Thank you, Leslie. That was really good. And that's going to do it for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to live your story to the fullest. 
Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.